0: This morning, we are continuing our sermon series. It's going to take us through the end of the summer, the series called Who's on First? Knowing God by Name. And behind this series is the question, very simple question, who is God? What's he like? Who is this God that we worship as we gather together? Who's the God to whom we pray? What's he like? What's his nature? What's his character? What can we expect from him? And what is expected from us? in return. And each week through the series, we're looking at a different name or a title that God reveals about himself in the Bible. And each week, we have a Who's on First trading card. So hopefully you got your trading card on the way in. And if you've missed some of the past weeks, you can go and they should have extras in the Welcome Center and you can fill out your collection, which I know you're eager to do. So... (laughs) But really, these cards are there as a tool to help us remember, to remember the name of God that he's revealed, to help us remember that in our day-to-day life so that we have that to take with us and facilitate that remembering. Because remembering seems to be one of our biggest problems as humans, doesn't it? We're forgetting all the time. Forgetting where we parked the car. Forgetting where we put our phone. And so we need all sorts of different reminders because we forget. I recently had a harsh reminder of how much I hate being sick. A few weeks ago, uh, maybe I should give a disclaimer about the somewhat graphic nature of the story. It won't get that bad, I promise. So, but a few weeks ago, uh, a stomach bug hit our house. And I cannot remember the last time I had a stomach bug of any kind, but this bug came and it was brutal. It it wasn't just me. It was our whole family, all six of us, all at the same time, throwing up all night long and into the next day. It was awful. I mean, usually when something like this happens, we pass a bug through the family, either Abby or I gets it, and yeah, we might both get it eventually, but it's usually staggered enough that one of us can take care of the kids while the other is trying to sleep it off and get better. Not this time, because we were all participating all the time, and it was awful, and I hate being sick. I hate being sick for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I hate just feeling awful, but I hate it also because just can't do anything, It was the first sick day I have have had from work, and I can't remember how long. You know, and we're sick, and we're trying to take care of ourselves, trying to take care of one another, trying to take care of our family, and yet we can barely function. I mean, we struggle when our bodies aren't right, don't we? We struggle just to function day in and day out, and some of you I know are feeling that so acutely that it is actually painful. And that's the reality that we're going to be jumping into today as we look at the next name that God reveals about himself, and we're going to find it in Exodus chapter 15. I invite you to follow along on the screens if you'd like, but hear God's words speaking right into those situations for us this morning. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There, the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes... If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into God's word together. Heavenly Father, Lord who heals We invite you to be at work in this time, that, Spirit, you would be ministering to those places within us that need your touch, that you would be moving and transforming us from the inside out. It's in the name of Jesus that we trust as we pray, amen. So the people of God have just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've been, if you recall that story, the, they had been slaves for generations and things had gotten really bad and they cried out to God and God heard them. And so he sent Moses to deliver them through a series of miracles, these displays of God's power in which he acted on behalf of his people and at the same time afflicted the Egyptians in all sorts of ways. He brought them out of Egypt physically, and they took them into the wilderness. He brought them through the Red Sea. He actually parted the water so that the people of God walked through on dry ground. And the Egyptian army was pursuing them from behind. And as soon as the people of God got to the far side of the sea, God closed the waters up over the Egyptian army, wiping out the enemy and delivering his people. An amazing act of God. This all happened up through the 14th chapter of Exodus. And so in the 15th chapter, just before what we read, the people have been singing and dancing about what God has done. They've been singing of his incredible power and might. They've been singing of his love, his provision, his protection. They've been singing, exclaiming the works of his hands. They've been singing, remembering how he was going to take them and plant them in the promised land and that they would flourish They've been celebrating. They've been remembering. And then they start walking in the passage that we read today. Because they got to get to that promised land. And so they start walking. And three days into the journey into the desert, they can't find any water. I mean, it is a des- desert after all, right? And eventually they come to a place called Mara. And in Mara, there is a pool or a pond, whatever it is, it's, there's water. And I imagine that as they saw the water, they, they were hopeful. They're thinking, finally, this is the moment. Our healing, our restoration, our refreshment is finally here. The problem is, the water was not suitable to drink. It was bitter. It was salty. It was probably brackish. It was no good. The thing that they had hoped would bring them restoration would, in fact, make things much, much worse. And at this point we don't get a lot of the detail in the story. But I think they probably are getting desperate. You know, generally the human body can only last about 3 days without water. And they probably had brought some provisions with them, God had provided for them as they left Egypt, but it's probably reasonable to assume that those supplies were almost dry and they were starting to feel desperate wondering a very reasonable question, what are we to drink? And yet it wasn't just a question. We're told that the people grumbled as they asked the question. In other words, it wasn't just a question. It was an angry question. It was a leading and it was a blaming question. What are we to drink? You brought us here. Now we're going to die of thirst. And it makes me wonder, how do you respond when you get desperate? Our times of desperation... Often squeeze all sorts of things out of us. maybe when you're afraid when for yourself or for another. Maybe when your body is in fact the problem and you are looking for answers and you are desperate, how do you respond? Is it pleading? Is it bargaining? Is it anger? Is it blame? And Moses, instead of taking it personally, like I think many of us would, he goes right to God with it. He cries out to the Lord. And then the Lord responds with this really kind of strange instruction. He says, you know, here, see that that piece of wood? Take that piece of wood, toss it in the water, it's all going to be fine. And of course, when Moses does what God tells him to do, the water becomes fit to drink. It was healed. The water was restored. God was demonstrating in that act, he was giving the proof of the name that he was going to reveal about himself. Because this was the moment, the first time in the Bible, where God reveals himself explicitly as the Lord who heals. He's the Lord who heals. In Hebrew, it's Jehovah Rapha, or actually Yahweh Rapha, and literally, "I am who heals." He's the Lord who heals. And he demonstrated his ability to heal by first healing the water and then using that water to bring healing to their parched bodies. And God is the Lord who heals. And most of us sitting here hearing my voice are probably thinking, yeah, I know that. So what? What do I do with it right now? What do I do with it? Because on one hand, this attribute of God is the one, perhaps, that one of the ones that we hold on to most tightly. We cling to it as a source of hope. I mean, if you reflect on your prayer life, and certainly our prayer life, whenever it seems like the body of Christ gathers together, we are constantly praying for healing. How much of your prayer life is related to healing? When we and others are sick, it's easy to remember in those moments that we're not in control, that there are limitations to what science and medicine can do, and so it's natural in those moments to turn to God, to cling to Him as the, the great source of hope for healing. And for some of you, it has been that great source of hope, that God is the healer. It's sustained you for days and weeks and months and even years, holding on and clinging to that hope. But on the other hand, the reality that he is the Lord who heals can be frustrating, can't it? It can be confusing. It can be hard to know what to do with because we may know it, or at least we, we know that we're supposed to believe it, but we're not even sure that we do believe it, especially when it doesn't seem like the healing that you've been longing for is happening. You find yourself wondering, when is it going to happen, if it's going to happen? Does God even care that I am suffering at all? I mean, these are the things that rise up within us. I think when we're honest and consider the reality, this name that it is the Lord who heals. There are a number of things I still want to grab onto and pull out of this passage, as well as more of the witness of, of the Scripture about the Lord who heals that I think we can still hold on to, even in our confusion and our frustration. The first is the simple fact and reality that the Lord is the Lord who heals and he can heal you and any other, anyone else at any time. This is just something that we have to continue to affirm and remind ourselves because we so easily forget. The Lord can heal you at any time. And sometimes he uses water, sometimes he uses medicine, sometimes he uses surgery, sometimes he puts his divine hand upon you and restores, heals, your body brings wholeness that science and medicine can't even explain. Sometimes it happens in response to our faith and the faith of other people. As Jesus was walking this earth in his lifetime. He would walk, and sometimes crowds would gather around him, and people would press in because they believed that if they could just grab his robe, if they could just put their hand upon him, then their bodies would be healed. And it happened, and it, they touched him, and they were healed. It was in response to their faith that they were healed. Sometimes it happens in response to our prayers. In James chapter 5, verse 15, it says, The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. It's a prayer where we're trusting not in the prayer itself as if the prayer is some sort of magical incantation or spell that if we say it right or we say it the right number of times, then healing will come. And it's not trust in me or you, the person saying the prayer, you know, and I got to tell you that as a pastor, no, I do not have more access to God than you do, but I hear that all the time. Would you just put in a prayer for me? You're closer to him than I am. No, I'm not. It's not me, the prayer of the prayer that you need to put your trust in. It's in the one to whom we pray. The prayer offered in faith, trusting the one who reveals himself as the healer, is the one that will make us well. And one of the things for us to consider is maybe, just maybe, as much as we pray for healing, we need to be praying more and in more faith. And maybe for you, you just feel like, you know what, I don't have any faith anymore. I've been asking for this for so long, and it doesn't seem to be happening, and you're tired. And so maybe you need to invite others to join you in prayer, to ask along with you. And you might be thinking, I don't want to burden anyone else with my stuff. And forget that. That's a lie of the devil. Because we are called together as the people of God to carry one another's burdens, and if nothing else, to carry them to the Lord in prayer. And so if you are suffering, alone, struggling in a lack of faith, please stop. Let someone know who will pray with you, who will pray for you, who can offer the prayer in faith when you don't feel like you have any left. You can always send an email to prayer at pctr.org. And there's a team of people who will pray for you and with you. And it's amazing to see when God does respond to our prayers. It's happened to me a couple of times where I can say very clearly that we were gathered together in prayer around someone and there was no explanation other than the direct intervention of God in response to our prayers. It wasn't us, the prayers. It wasn't the prayers themselves. It was the one to whom we prayed that wanted to do something miraculous in this person's life and bring healing and restoration. And I know some of you have stories like this. Share them. please, To encourage us in our faith to help us remember that He is the Lord who heals. The Lord can heal you at any time, but the Lord will heal you in His time. Healing will happen. It will come. It is one of the great promises of God that He will heal you at some point. And sometimes, yes, it is in our lifetimes, those moments where He brings healing, And it is worthy of awe and wonder. It's worthy of giving him praise and honor and glory that we celebrate his work in our lives because we know we couldn't do it ourselves. And all of those moments of healing are moments for us to point to God and say, hey, look, he's the Lord who heals. He's still alive and he does amazing things. But maybe more often than not, that's not what happens. It certainly doesn't seem like it happens the first time we ask, often not the second or the third or the fourth, or for many, many years as we continue to ask for that healing, it doesn't always come. But God will heal. Sometimes the Lord heals, but it's beyond the days that we walk this earth. See, part of the Christian hope The Christian hope is not that we get to someday become disembodied spirits as if we get to leave these bodies, that these are somehow the problem, and that the hope is getting out of them. The great Christian hope is that your body matters and that someday your body will be made new, that there will be for you a resurrection body, a body similar to the resurrection body of Jesus. So you'll be able to walk through doors and stuff, I guess what Jesus did. I don't know exactly how it all works, but what I know is that you will be restored, be made new in his time. Healing will be complete in you. I mean, Revelation 21 points us to the end when Jesus has come again, and he restores all things. He heals all things, and it says this, that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All of that which we carry in our bodies will be healed. It will come in His time, because He is the Lord who heals. And he, as the, the Lord who heals, is also attentive to the reality of our suffering and our needs. He's often referred to as the Great Physician. And if we think about doctors in our lives, what makes what makes a, a physician great? I mean, I think there's a couple of things, at least, that make a, a physician great. A great physician is good at their job, don't you think? You know, if you are, are facing brain surgery, my dad always had a saying, he said, someone graduates last, and do you want them being the one doing your brain surgery? Fair question. They passed, but it was all Ds. It's like, I don't know if I want them poking around in there. Right? A great physician is really good at what they do, really good at their job, but a great physician also is attentive to the reality of their patient and listens to their patient. I mean, they don't just speak at you, they speak with you. I'm sure many of us have had that experience. You are with a doctor and you're trying to express your concern, your question, your doubt, your wonder, and, and it's clear you're not getting through. You might as well be having the conversation with the wall because they've come in, they've presented to you what they had to say and that was all they intended to do in that moment. They weren't gonna listen. So your great physician will listen, will will care about your perspective. Now, it doesn't mean that they're just gonna do what you say because if you're complaining about your spleen and they're wondering why is your arm flopping around like this? It's probably not your spleen, right? A great physician is going to tell you, you know, no, that's not the problem. I actually know probably better than you on this one. I am an expert. And often I think we come to God asking for him, like that great physician who's attentive to us, to deal with and alleviate the suffering that we're feeling and experiencing in our body. And yes, sometimes he heals those very things in this earthly life. Sometimes, though, he waits and he heals them in his time, at the end of time. And sometimes it just doesn't look, the healing just doesn't look the way we want it to. Because so frequently, we're focused on our bodies. But over and over again, as we look at the witness of the Bible, we're told that there's an even greater sickness. See, in this story that we read today, we're told that the people grumbled, that their hearts had become bitter. It wasn't just the water that was bitter. Their hearts had become bitter in the process, in the midst of their suffering and their doubt in the midst of waiting to figure out when their healing and restoration would come, when the water would be fresh for them, they had become bitter in their heart. I think this happens so often to us when we're waiting, when we're facing all sorts of situations, when something's happened, maybe in our bodies, maybe it's in your relationships, maybe it's in your job. We're 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 no longer just thinking about the reality of the struggle and the hardship in the moment, in the circumstance and situation right in front of us. Instead, there's become a bitterness that seems to be at the root of our entire lives. It's like everything tastes salty and bitter. See, bitter water we know will kill the body. If you make a a steady diet of drinking the ocean water, that's not going to work out for you. Bitter water will kill the body, but a bitter heart will kill the soul. And that's the greater sickness. See, Jesus was incredibly concerned about the suffering of humanity. You read the Gospels and you see he is constantly healing. He is setting people free from the captivity of demons. He is comforting them in their grief. But he is also concerned about the greater sickness, even more so. There was one time where Jesus was teaching in a house. And there was a crowd of people all jammed in there. And there were, there were four friends that, that had a, another friend who was paralyzed, And they were trying to get to Jesus, and they couldn't seem to squeeze through the crowd, and so they do this incredible thing where they take their friend up onto the roof of the house, and they actually start digging a hole in the roof. They make this hole large enough that they can lower their friend down on the mat that they were carrying him right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man, and he looks at the friends, and he sees their faith, and do you know what he says to him? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you think that's what they came for that day? Do you think that's what the friends had been hoping Jesus would do for them? Do you think that's the outcome that they had expected? No, I I think they're thinking, Jesus, what are you talking about? Can't you see? He can't move. He needs a job. He needs to provide for himself, for his family. He is suffering. But Jesus looks at the man and he sees the primary need. He sees the greater sickness. He knows that the primary need was for his soul to be healed, not for his body. He knew that the body would be healed eventually, but the soul needed to be healed now. And the people who are watching are incredulous because Jesus has claimed that he could forgive sins, which really only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knows that that's what the crowd is thinking around him, and so he says to them, so that you know I have authority on earth to forgive sins? He looks at the man and says, take up your mat and walk. See, he healed his body not because it was the primary need, but to prove that he had the authority to heal the core greater need, the greater sickness, that he could in fact heal the soul, not just the body. It was a deeper healing. Some of you may know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, and if that name sounds a little bit familiar, maybe it's because she is affiliated with a, a whole set of camps called Johnny and Friends, and it's, it's a camp for special needs children and their families, and our youth have served at that camp, and so it's an amazing, it's an amazing work, but it all came out of her story, and if you're not familiar with your story, I would encourage you to go check it out. And I was, I was looking at it again this week and I actually I misread something that said she had, a, she had a diving accident and I actually read it as driving accident. My mistake. But she had a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay. Shallow water. And in an instant, her spinal cord was severed and she was a quadriplegic at 17 years old. Can't even imagine. Can't even imagine how your life has turned completely upside down, some of you actually can because you know that the instant, you know that instant that life changed for you. And it became suffering and it became hardship and it became trial from then on. And that's what she lives with. And she was desperate, as you can imagine, for God to heal her. She was a faith-filled woman. And her friends would come and visit her in the hospital and they'd ask, what scripture would you like us to read? And every single time, Every single time she says, I would ask them to read for me John 5 because at John 5, it's a story of a paralytic who can't seem to get the healing from the pool of Bethesda, but Jesus shows up in his life and he says to him, take up your mat and walk. And you can imagine what a hope-filled story that was for her as she cry out in prayer asking for God to bring the healing into her life. She even eventually went to a conference where there was someone who, who was known to have the gift of healing. And after the, the speaking and after the worship, she was, found herself in a line of 35 people. She was 15th, waiting in line, and she was looking around going, what is going on? Why? How could Jesus, if he's a good healer, how could he deny the prayers of a quadriplegic woman, desperate to see his healing? What an honest question that so many of us carry. And she continued to think about this and realized, uh, over time she realized that a bitterness was growing in her heart because everything that people tried to do to help her, to serve her, to make her life a little bit easier was never enough. And she became harsh and she became critical and the bitterness was growing. At one point her husband finally sits down on the edge of the bed and he says to her, I feel trapped. I can't do this anymore. And her snap reaction was, didn't you know it was gonna be hard when you married me? He married her knowing she was a quadriplegic. Didn't you know it was going to be hard? You knew. She couldn't take those words back. As they came out of her mouth, she could feel and knew that they were coming out of the bitterness that had been growing in her heart and her soul. She continued to struggle, as you can imagine, and it got worse. She eventually started to experience chronic pain, so much so that she had to be turned all throughout the night, or the pain would become so excruciating, so unbearable. And so her husband would get up all through the night and turn her, and turn her, and turn her for years, and 10 years. And he finally sits down on the edge of the bed again and says, I feel trapped. I can't do this anymore. And she relays that in that moment, she responded differently. I don't blame you. If I was in your situation, I'd feel the same way. I'm not going to fault you. I'm not going to guilt you. I'm going I'm to pray for you. I'm going to cheer you on, trusting that Jesus is in fact going to get us through this, that the grace of God is going to be enough to sustain us and somehow help us to keep moving forward. God, I've been working on her through her struggle, through the suffering, through the trial, through the pain to bring a deeper healing within her soul to eradicate the root of bitterness that was growing up in her because... Bitter water will kill the body, but a bitter heart will kill the soul. And God wanted to bring a deeper healing to her soul, and he was using the suffering of her body to reveal what needed to be healed so that he could do the work that only he could do. And with her change of response to her husband, she could see the anxiety, the stress, the weight lift off of his shoulders. God was bringing a deeper healing into his heart. As well, Because the ultimate healing for her, for him, was not of the body. The ultimate healing was of the soul, that her heart would be filled with joy, that she could love God more completely, love her husband more fully. See, that's the greater sickness and the deeper healing that God wants to bring into our lives. One of the problems with the story that we've read today, though, is it, I think it hits, hits us right between the eyes because God reveals himself as the Lord who heals, but he also makes this promise in the form of a condition. He says to the people, if, if you'll listen to me, if you will obey me, if you will follow my commands, if you will do what is right in my eyes, then I will protect you, I will heal you. And man, when we look at our lives, we reflect, are we really worthy of God's healing? If it is conditional, are we worthy of that healing? And and Peter, I think, is writing into that reality for us from the reading we had earlier. In in 1 Peter chapter 2, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, by his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, you have been healed. See, because Jesus... Stepped into our place. Jesus came to pursue us who were lost. Jesus came as the great physician knowing that we couldn't bring the healing we that our souls needed, we couldn't bring the healing that our bodies needed, and so he came and stepped into our place so that as he offered himself on the cross rather than just healing, preserving, protecting himself, making himself vulnerable, taking on the wounds of physical pain, the wounds of relational rejection, the wounds of taking on our sin on himself, he took it all on himself, wounded by it so so that we could be healed, so that you could be confident, I could be confident that the Lord is the Lord who heals, sometimes in this earthly life, but always He will heal you in His time, and it is secured and promised for you, not because you're worthy of it, but because Jesus was wounded in your place. He's the Lord who heals body and soul. And so this morning, As we come to the communion table, I wonder what needs to be healed in you. Is it your body? Is it relationships? Is it your bitter heart? Is it the sin and the guilt that you carry? Because this table reminds us that he was wounded. He was broken so that you could be healed. He is the Lord who heals you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing promise that you are the Lord who heals. And we do give you the praise and the glory and the honor when we get to see it and it happens miraculously. We, we give you the praise and glory and honor when it happens through the tools of medicine and science. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor when we hold on to you by faith, even when we don't see that healing in this lifetime of our bodies, but we trust that it will come. Lord, we confess, though, as we wait, we often find bitterness and sin within us, rising up. We ask that you would heal those, that greater sickness, that deeper sickness that is in our hearts and in our souls, that sickness that we can't even begin to touch. Thank you, Jesus, that you took that sickness on yourself so that we could be healed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Friends, this is the table of Jesus Christ. It's not the Presbyterian Church's table. It's not my table. It's his table. He is the host because he is the healer. And so if you've put your trust in him as the one who can heal your body, who can heal your soul, then you are welcome to receive from him his grace and his mercy and his healing this morning.